0: How good in the midst of all the uncertainty around us that we can continue to read the words of Jesus and to probe His thinking and, and His wisdom as we try to march through these times. I was thinking as uh, Kelly and, and uh, Jen were leading in that song, um, it comes from the perspective of, of the woman who had crashed the party, the dinner party where Jesus was, and snuck up behind Him. And, began to wash his feet with her tears and then poured that perfume over him. and I closed my eyes for a minute and just trying to picture the song as we were singing. And I was fighting back the tears. It is f- amazing sometimes how uh, we can be transported into an experience of the presence of Jesus. Do you know that's, that's what prayer allows us to do? It allows us to step right into the presence of Jesus. Let's just talk to him for a minute. Father God, thank You for allowing us through Your Holy Spirit to directly enter into Your presence as we invoke the name of Jesus, Your Son, who sits at Your right hand and who welcomes all of those who call on His name. Lord Jesus, thank You for giving us the privilege of knowing the Father by knowing You, and knowing you as we not only listen to your words, but as we trust them and as we put them into practice and as we develop a relationship with you. We pray that in the midst of this ongoing season that you will continue to grant us a profound sense of your presence guiding us day by day, allowing us to know that we are yours no matter where we are, that we matter to You, that You've not forgotten us, that You care about this troubled world, which is why You came the first time. You came to redeem us from our own sins, our own rebelliousness, our own waywardness, our own confusion. And You came to bring clarity. Clarity so that we can know how to live in ways that honor God, Clarity about what truth is in the midst of a world that often abandons truth or proclaims that there is no truth. And they also came to bring relief. Relief from the weight of carrying our own sins. Relief from the pressures that we think we have to figure it all out by ourselves or that we have to save ourselves. Relief from the need to be religious enough to bring ourselves up to You and to prove ourselves to You. Thank You that grace means that when we've received the gift of Jesus Christ into our lives that You see us as we will one day be, complete and whole and pure. Thank You for this kind of renewal that You bring as often as we trust you, as often as we pray to you, as we pour our hearts hearts out to you. In the days when we get tired and frustrated that this is still going on, we pray that you'll bring us a renewal of energy and of spirit and of focus that you'll give us as Christians, whether we are new at this or whether we are longstanding veterans, a sense of, of the newness of the joy that you have And being in the presence of your people and of hearing your children call out to you. So, God, in the quietness of this room, allow us each to quietly reach out to you and talk to you, whether we do that every day or whether we haven't done it for years until this moment. Hear us, Lord. And now, Lord, as we look into this gospel and the words of Jesus, I pray that you'll give us understanding about what he would have us to know in order that we may live well and wisely. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 22. We're in a series that we're calling Rediscovering Jesus we never lost him, we're just trying to uh, bring through some clarity about who Jesus is, because sometimes in the way that Jesus is regarded in this world, uh, the Jesus of the Bible kind of gets left behind. So our topic this morning is rightful rendering, this passage will help lead us into that. Matthew twenty-two fifteen to 22, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. In an age of polarization, Democrats and Republicans 40 years ago were not so far apart in their platforms. Today, there seem to be very few bills which unite parties for very long. Yet, I think there is one tendency that is still shared by all. Rarely, if ever, does a member from either party volunteer to pay more taxes than those that are due. Have you noticed that? Uh, yes, there are a few uber-wealthy one-percenters who argue that they should be taxed at a higher rate, yet they do not voluntarily pay more taxes than are due, even though there's no law stopping them from doing so. In other words, they talk about good game and they don't necessarily follow through. Don't worry, we're not we're going to talk about politics and all of that. But I bring up these issues of polarization and paying taxes Today, because both of these concerns color the background of the New Testament passage we are looking into this morning. When Jesus was asked whether it was right to pay the imperial tax that Rome extracted from Jews in Israel, there was much more going on than the casual reader may realize. Because of that reality, there is also more to Jesus' answer than we may realize as well, even though... The central part of his answer, render to Caesar what is Caesar's or give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, is very well known. So I want to say good morning. Welcome to those of you who are here in the room with us today. I've met already some folks who are here for the first time, and some of of us are here every week, and I'm really glad that you're here today. And I want you to know that today is part six of a series that we've been going through at looking through different gospel passages where Jesus was at conflict with some of the people around him, and we are rediscovering Jesus through the clarity that comes through that conflict And this leads us to ponder Jesus' thoughts about how we navigate our responsibilities as Christians to both God and government. So welcome to North River today. I'm glad that you are here with us in our Pembroke Worship Center. And let me say hello to those who are watching online, wherever you may be. Uh, Those in the room today enjoy the benefits of singing and praying and conversing with each other in ways that tend to bind us together. And I hope that I can encourage those of you who are connecting with us online or from home or from your traveling location to at least take the next 30 minutes or so and and make that a priority. Avoid the temptation to multitask, focus in for a few minutes and really listen to what Jesus was saying behind these words. Together we thank the Lord for the technology that allows us to function as a a hybrid with both in-person and online congregations today. So let's together pursue our shared focus to understand and embrace the challenges that come from Jesus. On most Sundays at North River, there is a question that we are pursuing Today's question and topic follows the King James language of this passage. What does Jesus want from us when he says, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's? So, our topic is rightful rendering. And here's the big idea that I want to get across right from the beginning Wise Christians choose to practice good citizenship so that we are free to focus on honoring God even more. Rightful rendering. When you're asked tough questions. Jesus was asked a tough question on this particular day. And so I'm looking at this as saying, what lessons can we learn from Jesus in the way that he handled this trap that was set up for him? Here's the first lesson we learn from Jesus. Read your surroundings. In other words, know what's going on around you whenever you are in in a debate or in some kind of a conversation when Jesus is being talked about or where religious faith is being talked about. Look at the way this begins in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. We'll stop there for the moment. Mark Barber, a retired Methodist pastor, provides a wonderful overview of the different groups of people who are often around Jesus in these settings. We're told about two of them here, but let me expand beyond that. The Pharisees were the first group. They hated Greco-Roman influence in Israel. The Pharisees were very religious conservatives who were extremely popular at that time. They tended to judge the spirituality of everyone else around them based on their own traditions. And they deeply resented the cultural changes that were being brought into Israel, first by the Greeks and then by the Romans. Closely aligned with the Pharisees was a second group known as the Zealots, They were more political than religious, but they also resisted the Romans in the same way that the Pharisees did. While the Pharisees hated Roman culture, the Zealots hated Roman rule over Israel. The Zealots felt it was treasonous to pay taxes to Rome. A third group is known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees were different from both the the Pharisees and the Zealots. The Sadducees loved Greek and Roman culture. They felt that it elevated them and it brought them to a higher place. But they were also religious like the Pharisees, and yet they liked going to the theater, and they liked the sports and the gymnasiums that Greek culture had added in. The Sadducees, though, were in charge of the temple, and this made them rather wealthy, That means they had a strong interest in keeping the system going and they would have been very upset over Jesus clearing the temple, one of the passages we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. And finally, there was a fourth group known as the Herodians. The Herodians were more secular in nature, but they were tied to King Herod, who in turn was tied to Caesar. Herod wasn't proclaimed king by popularity in Israel. He was placed there by Uh, by Rome and by Caesar in Uh, particular in a sense he was a vassal king appointed to his role by Rome so the Romans had imposed this imperial tax on every land that they conquered and people like the people of Palestine the name that they had given to the land of Israel had to pay this tax on an annual basis Rome contracted with Herod's supporters for a certain amount of the taxes collected, and then everything that was over that amount, Herod's followers were able to keep. So they opposed anyone who got in the way of or upset this continual gravy train that was moving its way from Israel all the way to Rome, with different groups taking a cut of it. Read your surroundings. Jesus instantly knew who he was speaking to and who was coming forward with this question and we're told that there were two groups, that the Pharisees had gotten together and they were plotting together with a group of Herodians. If you understood the list that I just went through, these are two polar opposite groups who for the purpose of taking down Jesus had come together saying, hey, we had something in common. We all want to get rid of Jesus, so let's work together. Jesus read his surroundings. Second, Distrust flattery. Notice what happens here when they bring forward their question. If I start at verse 16, it says, They sent their disciples, so this is Pharisees who are sending their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then what is your opinion. is, Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? First, notice how two opposite groups have joined together here. As I said a moment ago, the Pharisees hated the culture around them and they were very religious. The Herodians were far more secular and they loved the Greek and Roman culture. Yet here they are plotting together in order to trap Jesus. This alliance is Jesus' first clue that something was wrong with that scenario. Second, notice how they begin to butter up Jesus and they describe him as a truth teller. In their approach, they're trying to suck up to Jesus, so to speak, in order to bring three truthful observations to Jesus about himself before they ask their question. This sounds too good coming from these people who constantly oppose Jesus. Jesus, you are a man of integrity, they say first. You teach the way of God and in accordance with the truth. You never hear stuff like this coming from Pharisees. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. In other words, you haven't given us any special place like we're used to getting with everybody else. What are they doing? This is one big attempt at flattery. Southern Baptist pastor David Dykes explains how this works. He says, Flattery isn't the same thing as true admiration. Flattery is patting someone on the back to find the soft spot to insert the dagger. Flattery is manipulation. So these are statements that the Pharisees weren't willing to acknowledge openly and probably the Herodians weren't willing to acknowledge openly either. This flattery was designed to force Jesus to answer a question that they had been plotting to ask, a tricky question that was really designed to take him down. All of this was a setup. It was a trap. This was Jesus' second clue, the buttering up, the the praise that wasn't normal in their dialogue with him. Matthew adds in three clues that this was a trap. Uh, his first uh, person insight that he adds in verse 15 when he says they were making plans to trap him. Uh, Then in verse 18, he says, knowing their evil intent. In other words, he's saying Jesus must have let the disciples know that he understood what was going on. And then again in verse 18, within Jesus' own question, he starts off by saying, why are you trying to trap me? Now we can see how this question was a trap. These were two groups, Pharisees and Herodians, that normally did not work together. We've established that point. What united them was their mutual desire to take Jesus down. They picked a question that had to do with taxes or politics, not God, faith, or religion. The Pharisees hated this particular tax because they wanted nothing to do with the Romans, and every time that they paid it, it secured the place of dominance that the Romans had in Israel. The Herodians loved the tax for a completely different reason because they were getting a cut off of it and they were getting rich from it. They wanted to keep it going. The question itself is this. Is it right to pay this imperial tax to Caesar or not? In other words, should we oppose it? This was a culture war question that was tied to a current raging conflict in the first century world and specifically in that culture. The question was framed in a way that tried to force a yes or no answer. If Jesus said no, they would inform the Romans that Jesus was publicly opposing the tax, therefore he was a threat to Pilate, to all of those who were ruling in Israel, and all the way to Rome. If Jesus said yes, then they would use that against him by accusing him of corruption by backing an unpaltered unpopular tax in the eyes of the Pharisees and by many other Jewish people in Israel at that time. They knew that other people had their hand in the till and they would say that Jesus had now become complicit with all of that. Either way, if he answered yes or no, they would embroil Jesus in this local culture war issue and it would cost him. At least that's what they thought. So we're looking at what Jesus did. First, he read his surroundings. And then he, when he picked up these words of flattery, He distrusted the flattery right away. The third thing we observe from Jesus is to slow down by asking clarifying questions. Look at what he does here. They pose the question about the imperial tax, and then Jesus says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. He knew what the coin was, But nonetheless, he slows things down. They've got to dig around. Somebody comes up with a denarius. In other words, it's a coin for a common worker's daily wage. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this on the coin? And whose inscription? So there was something written on that particular coin. Caesar's, they asked, they said. Then he said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So notice what he did here. First, he slowed things down by forcing them to answer his question first. Have you noticed that Jesus does this fairly often in the Gospels? For instance, in Matthew 21, the previous chapter, when the chief priest questions his authority, by what authority are you doing these things? He says, I'll I'll answer your question, but answer one for me first. John's baptism, meaning John the Baptist. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from human origin? All of a sudden, all the religious leaders have to scurry back and they have a little uh, confab and they put their heads together and they pretty quickly reckon, wow, if we say that this was from heaven, in other words, that John the Baptist was sent by God, the question that Jesus is going to ask us is, well, then why didn't you listen to John? And... If we say, no, that this is all of human origin, in other words, John made up his own stuff, well, most of the people already consider John to be a prophet, and the people are going to turn on us. So they said, well, we can't give you an answer. And Jesus says, very well then, I won't give you my answer about my authority and why I'm teaching. Jesus regularly upset their routine by asking clarifying questions of the people who are around him, especially those who had questionable motives. Instantly, they were on the defensive. When Jesus asked the question about the coin before answering their task, tax question, he was exposing the binary nature of their question by revealing that there was far more than a simple yes or no involved. So Jesus says, Show me the coin for paying the tax. This is Jesus' imitation of Cuba Gooding, saying, Show me the money. Instantly, they came up with one, and they brought it to him. And Jesus asked them, whose image is this on the coin, and whose inscription? All right, I want you to do me a favor right now. Wherever you are, whether you've got a wallet, we've got a purse, I want you to take out a bill. Grab a bill. Don't worry, I'm not going to play some funny game with you. You're not going to throw it into the offering, unless you choose to at the end of the service. That's all your business. And tell me, whose face is on the bill that you have? Somebody said Washington, so they don't have very much money in their wallet, because that's on the one. Who else has a different face on, on your bill? What do you got? I heard Abe Lincoln. Anybody else got something? Franklin, Hamilton. We've got a few. Anybody got the Benjamins working for you today? So you just think of it. On, on our dollar bills of, of various denominations, we have George Washington on the one dollar bill. We have... Thomas Jefferson on the $2 bill. I didn't hear anybody calling out Jefferson. Uh, I heard a Lincoln. That's the $5 bill. Hamilton's $10. Jackson is the $20. So I've got a, a 20 here. Uh, Grant is on the 50 And then we get to the Benjamins. Ben, and Ben Franklin's on the $100 bill. Just out of curiosity, I don't think I've ever seen one, but I, I noted that uh, William McKinley is on the $500 bill. And according to the Treasury, because I've also never seen one of these, they go all the way up to $100,000, and Woodrow Wilson is on the $100,000 bill. Isn't that amazing that we have all these people? With that bill still in your hand, let me ask you something. Who owns that bill? Is it yours? Now, some of you are looking really puzzled. say, I'm not sure what to say. I see a couple of quiet no's. And... We are raised to think that that is your money if it's in your wallet or it's my money that it's in my wallet. But on the front and on the back, there's a, there's a name on here. What's the name that's consistent on the front and the back of your bill? The United States of America. So wh- what's interesting is that if you were to take that bill and light it on fire... First of all, you would be out whatever the the value of that denomination is, and you're hurting yourself. But it's actually a criminal act to destroy a bill that is the property of the United States. What that means is that you and I technically don't own these bills, even though we operate as if we do, that the government does, and what we do is we trade something of value for this piece of paper with which the United States instills some value. So what do we trade? We trade labor, or we we trade something else of value that allows us to take one of these home and, and to walk away with it. But that money doesn't actually belong to you or to me, and that's the strange thing about it. Okay, now that I've got your attention, (laughs) back to Jesus. Jesus asks, whose image is this on the coin? Whose inscription is this that's written on the coin? These clarifying questions infer that there's some similar arrangement and the coin actually belongs to Caesar, even though they have to trade labor a day's wages in order to gain that one coin that they use to pay the tax. So Jesus then answers brilliantly, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then he goes beyond and says, and to God what is God's. In other words, in this realm, we fork over what the government requires us to do. Paul puts it a different way, building off of this same teaching from Jesus. In Romans 13, he says, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If respect, then respect. If honor, than honor and saying that we as Christians pay these things out of our sense of duty because we are Christians and because we are God honoring people we honor the state in ways that are appropriate the foundation for Paul's words in Romans 13 is based on what Jesus taught here in Matthew 22 verse 21 one more step that we see from Jesus restore the focus to honoring God so he says to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The Pharisees and the Herodians tried to embroil Jesus in this culture war debate that all centered on whether or not they would pay the imperial tax. And they tried to, to trap him into choosing a side when either side for him would create trouble. Jesus' questions slowed things down and allowed him to turn the tables and to throw things back their way, forcing them to, ask, to answer his questions. And his questions exposed their shallow and binary thinking that demanded a simple yes or no. When Jesus was far more concerned with the matters of their hearts that led to how we serve God. The second part of his comment then exposes a deeper concern. He refused to allow temporary earthly responsibility to undermine our ultimate priorities. His deeper concern was leading people to give God his due. In other words, saying, the tax you pay, that's a short term thing. You do it once and it's over, but we owe our best to God every day. We owe everything to God every day. Caesar's image was only on coins that were temporary. The image of God is stamped on every human life from the beginning. And so Jesus turned their thinking in that direction when he used that word image. Genesis 1.27 tells us that every male and female who was ever created from every tribal group or ethnic group or race across this world is stamped with the image of God that male and female we are created in the image of God. So we give Caesar his due. Christians demonstrate their submission to current authority by paying our taxes. We have the right to participate in the process of selecting representatives and in the debate over uh, which taxes will be levied upon us and, and other matters. But once the decisions are made, once the elections are held, once the bills are passed, we are to be known for paying our taxes, not cheating on them, because that would never honor God. And Jesus is making all that clear in the first half of his response. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. The harder part is the second half. Honoring God even more. Recognizing that God's stamp is on each of us. We honor God with our whole lives. How are we created in God's image? Well, we are like God in a number of ways. We'll never be God's. We're not identical to God, but we are essentially relational beings just as God is a relational being. The first discovery we make about God in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is that there's God the Creator, there's God the Spirit who's hovering over the earth, and then it says, let there be light, and there was light, and John's gospel interprets that as Jesus who was involved in the creation of the world from the very beginning. And so we see Father, Spirit, and Son Together in this Holy Communion that we call the Trinity from the three opening verses of the Bible. In other words, we never ever see God in isolation. We only know God within this divine community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a relational being. He's never isolated. Should it be a surprise then that we are essentially relational beings? We, we crave relationship. We need it. We, we limit how long somebody can be put in solitary confinement, whether they're a POW or, or a prisoner in this country. Because people start to go a little bit crazy without human contact. One of the things that many people are wrestling with What do we do with the lack of human contact and the lack of connection during this time? It's been painful for many people. Probably most painful for all, for those who are living in senior living facilities, in the times when they weren't even allowed to leave or to go to the normal places where they would gather for lunch with everybody else. We are created with this relational capacity. We are like God in that we are all creative in some way. We discover God creating from the very beginning and each of us has different creative aspects. You create with words or with pictures or with art or by constructing buildings, but we all make things better. We're designed to do that in some way and that reflects part of the nature of our God as well. And we all are created with the capacity for selfless acts, doing things for others which makes us different from much of the animal world my dog has a wonderful little personality he is so cute and fun and I love being with him but I get news for you he doesn't do things for me when he comes and jumps on my knee it's so that I'll pat his head that's what he wants it's not to make me feel better human beings are very different We have this tremendous capacity that God has given us and that He reawakens the more that we grow in Christ to serve other people, and we are like God in that way. And we are entrusted with responsibility for caring for and tending to aspects of His creation. What was Jesus doing here? Jesus was pointing out that the Pharisees and Herodians were far too wrapped up in evaluating others based on short term temporal traditions and concerns rather than on how to honor God with their hearts, souls, minds and strength. The brilliance of Jesus' answer reveals that wise Christians discern the boundaries between earthly citizenship and heavenly citizenship. And so we live up to the responsibilities and obey the state so long as doing so does not violate the commands of God. And we we refuse to use obligations to the state to keep us from honoring God even more. We see some wonderful examples of how to do this throughout Scripture from Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon, Nehemiah and Esther as they served the kings in Persia, and from instructions that Paul wrote in Romans 13, among other places. But here's the main idea that I'm getting across this morning. Wise Christians choose to practice good citizenship so that we are free to focus on honoring God even more. Let me apply this a little bit to the time and the season that we're in right now. On Thursday night, I participated in a, a roundtable in Boston where there were a bunch of professors from some of the colleges in Boston that gather two or three times a year, along with some religious leaders from the area, and I was invited to become a part of this group a couple of years ago. And on this particular night, there were presentations, one from uh, a philosophy professor who was an atheist and one from a uh, chemistry professor at one of the colleges who happens to be a Christian. And they were talking about the limits of knowledge Specifically, the limits of religious knowledge. What can we know? And these kinds of talks actually stretch my thinking because I'm in the presence of people who think at levels that I'm really not capable of thinking, but I absorb an idea or two when I can catch up to them. And then there's, after these lectures, there are these uh, conversations around the table. And the tables are deliberately mixed with Christians and non-Christians. So at one point, we're, we go around our little table of six and we each identify who we are and how we got invited to this particular gathering. And at one point in the conversation, realizing that I'm the pastor of North River Church out here in the, in the suburbs, this one professor who's an atheist, I won't tell you what school he teaches from because I'm not trying to beat that drum or overly impress you, he asked me this question. Why are so many Christians opposed to taking the vaccine when you guys follow Jesus who said, love your neighbor as yourself? Ooh. How would you answer that question? I know that I got your attention right now with that question because we debate those things among our private circles of friends and so forth. And there, there are many of us who have been vaccinated and there, there are some who have chosen not to. My point isn't to heap guilt on one uh, area or another, one side of that. But the greatest current concerns around us today seem to center on these vaccines and the political ramifications that are tied to them. Nothing that Jesus said here restricts Christians from getting involved in political concerns. So we must use wisdom to discern which party or candidate is worthy of your vote or that uh, their perspectives will represent yours. Yet, we must never allow political concerns to keep us from honoring the Lord in all that we do. These are the general things that are applied. What does rendering to Caesar and rendering to God mean in this context? I have a bunch of thoughts, and these are just my thoughts. We can debate them later if you disagree, but I'm going to get them out there anyway to stimulate your thinking. Rendering to Caesar means that we are free to participate in the debates of the day. I have a feeling you'd all agree with that. Rendering to Caesar means that we pay our taxes fairly, fully, and on time. I hope that you will all agree with that. I'm not always sure. I know our congregation. Sometimes we can be kind of rascally. Rendering to Caesar means that we act for the welfare of others unless that act keeps us from honoring God. That may involve sometimes defending our nation. Right now... It may mean that there are times when you wear a mask or I wear a mask. For me, that thought that rendering to Caesar for the welfare of others means that it's one factor in why I chose to be vaccinated. I want you to know that I am. Rendering to God means that I treat my neighbor who disagrees with me or who dissents on this decision with love and respect. Even though we come out on opposite sides Of that issue. Rendering to God means that we put our allegiance to the Lord ahead of everything else all the other complicating stuff that is dividing our nation so that I can embrace people whose ideas are different from mine as we together pursue the Lord and His concerns. Rendering to God means that even though we pay a lot of money in taxes We still offer our tithes and offerings to the Lord because we belong to the Lord even more than we belong to our nation. He doesn't put a stamp on me that says the United States of America. He puts his Holy Spirit in me that says you belong to the living God who created you and I will never ever take this away from you. Rendering to God means that there are limits on my allegiance to government that are revealed whenever obeying the state would force me to violate my duty to honor God. And those are rare. And if they show up, that is where biblical civil disobedience would come into play. And that's a topic for another day that I'm not going to go farther with right now. So here's more of the good news that we're discovering in this series. The gospel is so good that there's nothing about your life that can shock or scare away Jesus. That's a really great thing. The gospel is advancing as people who are desperate for grace take hold of Jesus' offer no matter what their background or how difficult their pathway has been coming to that point. The gospel is so good that Jesus is willing to be misunderstood by standing with you or me. The gospel is so good, it's worth giving your life for it, even after counting the cost. The gospel is so good that Jesus gets angry when we create obstacles in the path from those who are farthest from God. That's what we learned about when he was clearing the temple. The gospel is so good that we find new life and purpose by carrying the cross and mission for Jesus. That was last week's message. And the gospel is so good that we can exercise citizenship in heaven and on earth at the same time. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Even more, render to God what is God's. I wonder if you would help me end this portion of our service before our final song by praying the prayer with me that I I put in the notes if you have them, or we're going to put it up on the screen here today. But it's a simple prayer coming out of this particular message and this particular passage. Let's do this together. Lord, help me to live on this earth and in this culture today in ways that let others know that I am your servant, hearkening to your words, listening to your voice, and following your lead. In Jesus' name and with his help, amen.